I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka Sounds of Science. One research area that has seen tremendous strides in the last few years is in vitro assays. Organoids, organ on a chip, and other technologies have improved to the point that it is past time to talk about how they can supplement or even replace some in vivo research. To speak on this topic, I am joined by Anjali Venkateswaran, Director of Strategic Partnerships for Charles River. Welcome, Anjali. Hello, Mary. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. So can you tell me first a little bit about your career in science? Yeah. So um, moving way back in time, you know, my graduate research focused on both in vitro and in vivo models of cancer. And I think I've spent, gosh, about the last 17 years at various life science and drug development organizations, both in you know the lab and uh, commercial positions. So one of the, you know, really interesting things about my career evolution is I've had the opportunity to observe the evolution of in vitro models from you know simple commercially available cell lines which you can purchase from a repository like ATCC to really complex 3D models that essentially recapitulate a huge chunk of the physiological state because i mean keep in mind with a lot of these cell lines yeah they're cheap they're mm-hmm. you know, relatively easy to work with But do they really represent the disease state? In most Mm -hmm. cases, no, right? And so you can get gorgeous data in the lab with these cell lines uh, that are workhorses in many ways. But what happens is, and we've seen this all the time, is as these uh, drug candidates, whether they're simple or very complex, as they progress through the uh, drug development evolution, they fail. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in the industry about the high attrition rates of of, um, drug, of the drug pipeline. And that's, you know, a part of one of the reasons this happens is that upfront, when you're doing a lot of the in vitro studies, you're looking at, you know, a mechanism of action, you're doing your basic foundational studies, you're not really using a relevant cell, a relevant um, model mm-hmm. to do your studies. I'd like to actually, you know, just take a pause here and just kind of uh, describe what what the differences are, I guess, between in vitro, in vivo, ex vivo, right? (laughs) Please do. Because these words get thrown around, even in common, you know, common language where, where, you know, folks hear about this. And I'm not sure if everybody really understands the distinctions. And that's, it's very important to understand the distinctions, right? Totally. So if you're starting with in vivo, you know, they're simply put, if you actually look at what it, it in vivo stands for, it's these are studies conducted in or on a complete living organism, Mm -hmm. right? And it actually comes from the Latin for in the living, meaning, you know, in vivo, as in you're doing something in a living organism. So basically that would comprise, you know, your typical animal model. It would even comprise, you know, studies of first in human studies. Mm -hmm. In contrast, in vitro, is from the Latin for, I believe it translates to within the glass, mm-hmm. you know, the actual, and I think glass refers to your typical lab equipment, right? You know, plates or dishes or flasks mm-hmm. or whatever. And it's really, you know, again, refers to studies done outside a living organism, typically in a lab setting. So a lot of the cell-based models that we, you know, people have been using are typically classified as in vitro models. 
Mm-hmm. Now, bridging your in vitro and in vivo, because there is a big difference, mm-hmm. you have a concept called ex vivo. Ex vivo essentially is our, it refers to experiments done outside an organism, but it, it uses samples or tissues from an organism. And a great example to describe in ex vivo studies are uh, biopsies. Mm-hmm. tumor explant. So you basically, in a, the case of a biopsy, you're still taking the sample from an in vivo organism, but you're doing the experiment outside of that organism. So that's a nice bridge. And there's a ton of work going on in ex vivo studies, especially in oncology, where you can basically take a chunk of a cancer out of a patient and manipulate it and evaluate which therapies could potentially work on it. Mm-hmm. And that will help guide and say, okay, for this particular patient, you know, we need to use this drug combination. So it's, it's a really good way of, you know, really driving personalized medicine forward. Yeah, totally. And, and I think, as you said earlier, when we were talking about this topic, cancer is really good at growing. It's kind mm-hmm. of its thing. So it, it's not too hard to make it grow in a dish as opposed to growing in its host person. Yeah. Yes and no. Yes. I mean, yes. Most cancers, actually, if you use the right culture conditions, they will grow. However, keep in mind, while they do grow, they're also, they also can and do change. And one of the huge areas of research is the concept of tumor microenvironment. And you'll see it as yeah. an abbreviation of TME, right? And there's so much work being done, especially in this, in this uh, space of immuno-oncology, because typically the tumor doesn't live in isolation, right? It's heavily dependent on what's around it, what's the environment around it. You know, the the basic concept is if you make that environment inhospitable, you know, it can and will die. And people use so many different methods. Heck, they use viruses, they use, you know, um, uh, engineered uh, T cells. You know, people have heard of CAR Ts, of course. Mm -hmm. So there's many different ways of basically making that tumor microenvironment a tough place for the tumor to grow in. So that's, I think, one of the key elements of cancer research is one is, of course, directly attacking the tumor. And there's a lot of work going on in that space. But it's also really focusing on the environment around the tumor, right? You know, to basically make the tumor die at the end of the day. We actually had a podcast um, several episodes ago about the tumor microenvironment and um, another on CAR T. So if people are interested in more explanation on that, you know, feel free to go back and check out those podcasts. But anyway, moving right along, can you give me an example of a new kind of in vitro technology that's like really cool? Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's a lot to choose from. It, there really is, you know, and I was, um, I think organoids has really come a long way. I mean, organoids were described many, many years ago, and they were, you know, initially described in a very, very good academic labs. Like all new technologies, organoids took time, right? Because they're tough, they're tough to create, they're tough to grow. For me, what I think is really cool is... Um, neuronal organoids. Neuroscience is such a challenging space for uh, drug de- drug development. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you don't have very good in vitro models because neurons are not that easy to, you know, culture and grow in a, in a lab. And the in vivo models, yes, there are some disease models and, you know, again, the workhorses of, of R&D. However, they don't fully recapitulate what's happening in the disease state. Mm-hmm. And you layer on the complexity of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, you know, frontotemporal dementia, 
it gets really hard to model the disease state um, preclinically, right? And keep in mind, a rodent uh, brain or central nervous system is very different from a human's. Right. I mean, one option is for some people to use large animal models, but then there's, you know, ethical issues, there's cost issues. So that becomes another barrier to overcome. I think one you know, alternative um, model that's coming a long way is the concept of um, 3D neuronal tissues, right? Now, uh, neuronal organoids or 3D neuronal tissues, they're very complex and they're very challenging to develop, right? Because brain development is tricky and we really fully don't know the entire cascade of development mm-hmm. because typically it requires the engagement, the timely engagement of multiple signaling cascades and things like that. And similar to other organoids, um, the extracellular environment is critical. Mm-hmm. There's so much work going on in this space. Um, and, you know, one area that I find really cool is this, the concept of developing these extracellular matrices uh, for neuronal organoids. Um, and the reason I think it's so cool is because um, it brings together different bodies of, of science you know, um, matrices have been around for a while. You know, matrigel is probably one of the most well-known uh, matrix that's used in cell in, in cell culture. Mm-hmm. But increasingly, uh, scientists are developing other novel biomaterials, and they're doing a lot of really interesting tweaks, not just in the composition, but also in the elasticity, in the rigidity, in the um, you know composition. It's just incredible what they're doing. So what I find really cool is that this requires multiple knowledge areas to come together. So you have the biology, you've got the material engineering component, and you have the physics. So you've got all these amazing uh, branches of science collaborating together. Um, And in fact, there are companies out there, typically startup companies, that bring these groups together. You have physicists collaborating with material engineers, collaborating with your pure neurobiologists, and they're, they're solving these incredibly complex problems um, with through lenses that, you know, we've never really looked at. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I think it. that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And I also personally love it when physicists get involved. It just, <laughs> I don't know, it yeah. seems more sci-fi-y to me when, it, when they do. <laughs> And they bring whole new concepts, right? You know, Absolutely, they bring I, they yeah. bring ways of thinking about things where you're like, oh gosh, I didn't even think of that. Oh, but yeah, that's such totally. a great idea. You know, I'll give you an example, right? Like, um, apparently there is such, uh, you know, there's a big deal about these matrices is the the rigidity. Do they give? Do mm-hmm. are they flexible? Sometimes you need to have more flexible matrices. Sometimes you don't. How? What's the diffusion characteristic? So if you put a say a growth factor in this matrix. Does it diffuse nicely? Does it diffuse slowly so it reaches the organoids? Think about it. You're almost creating an entire organ system outside the body. So you've got to, you know, to a large extent, reproduce what's going on inside the body. And that's a really, you know, tall order. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it also, like you said, depends on the complexity of the organ that you're trying to study. You know, if you're trying to study, I guess, the simplest organ might be skin. Yeah, that might be kind of easy. But you know, something like the brain is at the opposite end of the spectrum. Can you explain why in vitro studies are kind of having a moment like the technology is improving, but people are also getting more interested? Why is that? Yeah, definitely. I think in vitro models are definitely having a renaissance, right? And I think there's a few um, there's a few contributing factors. You know, one is that the technology platforms that are being used are 
are improving by leaps and bounds. And what is really heartening to see is that uh, out of the the progression of this research, right? Like uh, you start seeing, okay, um, improved ways of building organoids. You see this uh, these advances that come from these labs and and, and companies. Um, on improved matrices, increased you know, improvement in organ chip technologies, um, how and more importantly, how these uh, technologies are no longer just confined to you know labs; they're actually mm-hmm. going out into a more commercial application. Mm-hmm. So I think that is um, that I think is one of the big contributing factors. At the end of the day, you know, if you want a mo- you want a specific area of science to really kind of go mainstream you've got to have the data and you've got to have a body of work to support it, right? Because scientists by nature are skeptical as they should be. So they need to see the data and they need to believe um, and, you know, really evaluate the data and believe in it in order for a technology platform to be accepted widely. And, you know, the other thing is, of course, which we, you know, should never overlook is also the development of the readouts, because you can develop a really cool model system that works beautifully, but you've got to make sure that you have the right readouts in place mm-hmm. so that, um, you know, if I, so if say I have an organoid, right. And I put a drug in, I need to know that I have the readout to show that my drug is doing what it's supposed to do. Right. And that's when bio, the whole wide world of biomarkers comes in yeah. clinically relevant readouts. Right. I mean, biomarkers, I think you can have, a discussion for centuries on how um, important those are and how difficult they can be, especially in a clinical setting, mm-hmm. right? And they have especially, to be robust, yeah. Especially for a new drug. I mean, you don't Indeed. know exactly what it does yet. So you Exactly. <laughs> so as your role is also director of strategic partnerships, you should be able to handle this next one. The, the startup market for mm-hmm. in vitro technologies is growing rapidly. So what's up with that? Typically, you know, when VC firms, right, they're always at the forefront of scouting out new technologies and looking for the next big thing. Then they're, you know, they've, they've got extremely, you know, diverse and brilliant people on staff. And they are, they're, they've noticed in vitro. Over the past few years, several companies have been launched with really nice funding. I mean, one example like, that comes to mind is a company called Xylus. Um, it's spelled X-I-L-I-S, but it's pronounced Xylus. These guys have developed a, com- a technology called microorganosphere uh, technology. And again, it's very organoid based uh, to study different diseases. And they raised $70 million, $70 million in Series A funding, which is very high for a, your typical Series A. And then, you know, you've got another company called BitBio. They're based in the UK. They, they focus on iPSC-derived cell lines. And they raised over $100 million in Series B funding, you know, uh, I think, I believe it was last year. So again, these the fact that these companies are being launched with such excellent, you know, funding um, backing them suggests to me that the market is only going to keep growing and growing mm-hmm. and that the invest, investment community is willing to take a chance on, on these technologies because they really do believe that, um, you know, these technologies have a lot of potential. Yeah, definitely. Well, you mentioned earlier that scientists can be a little skeptical and conservative, but that's kind of nothing compared with scientific regulators. Mm. So going yep. to the sort of FDA regulatory challenge, where is that at in terms of in vitro studies right now? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I would say the, you know, FDA is probably one of the most conservative Mm -hmm. organizations, as they should be, right? Because they're under intense pressure to make sure that, you know, the drugs that they do approve, the therapies they do approve are are extremely safe Mm -hmm. and work across, you know, multiple uh, population segments. So they're, they're in a tough, I feel sometimes they're in a tough spot. And I do feel that sometimes they get they get more than their fair share of criticism. Mm-hmm. But the caveat here to think about is, as, you know, with the FDA, I think um, as these um, therapies become more complex, right? Now, historically, I think, gosh, about a decade ago, you know, you had the bulk of approvals were uh, small molecules. So these were defined chemical entities. You knew what the structure was. You knew exactly what was in there you know, right down to the last atom. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge chunk of the pipeline. And then over time, as you know, we all know, there's been this um, absolute tsunami of monoclonal antibodies. There's interest in gene therapy, cell therapy. There's just these modalities, of course, oligos. These modalities are just getting more and more complex. So the FDA Mm -hmm. has had the really difficult task of keeping up and establishing regulations for these complex modalities. But one thing I will say is, you know, historically the FDA has been resistant to approve, you know, investigative new drug or IND applications that had a heavy reliance on in vitro models because in their, in, I think their opinion was, yeah, these aren't really, may not be representative of the human state or the human disease state, which, you know, I would say they were right. But that's changing. And I think one of the key developments which has been applauded by, I think, uh, the scientific community is the recent passing of the FDA Modernization Act, right? Mm -hmm. And what this does is uh, this gives drug developers the option to use proven non-animal test methods. Mm -hmm. So they basically, you know, they took the wording um, from the original act, they took the word animal, and that was was what the word was, that was animal. You could only use animal models in your testing, right? They took that word out and they replaced it with language that says as long as the non-animal test, it can be pretty much any model as long as it's proven, it's reliable, robust, meaning the proof of validation is on the researcher, but they're not, they don't have to only use animal models, right? So if you have to use animal models, great, that's fine, but use it thoughtfully, Right. Try to see if you can, you know, and I think this will probably go flow right into the conversation around the three R's, but Absolutely. use it. Yep. Just to say. Yeah, use it thoughtfully. Use it in a way that makes sense. Not yeah. because it's like, okay, well, let's just try in vivo, you know, let's see how this, this drug works in an in vivo setting. Right. right? So, I, but I think, you know, coming back to the FDA, what this has done is, and I've seen, you know, an evolution in the FDA's thinking. And, you know, this, I would say, is extremely. Uh, visible in the rare disease space. You know, I had the opportunity to hear one of the former FDA um, uh, commissioners, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, talk at a conference. And, you know, initially when I went to sit down, I was like, oh boy, is this going to be really boring? But it was one of the best presentations I'd ever heard. And he was talking with such passion and enthusiasm about, you know, how the FDA really wants to support, the agency wants to support these these, uh, rare disease drug development, accelerate them because, you know, in a lot of cases, as you know, Mary, Mm -hmm. patients are waiting, right? And a lot of these patients, unfortunately, are children and they don't have the time. The time will run out very quickly for them. So there's always this like insane, you know, clock ticking 
And the FDA, I was so glad to see the FDA acknowledge that. And really, I think that there's a lot of uh, times they've engaged with the patients, with the caregivers of the patients, with the researchers, with the clinicians um, to, in, in, you know, to basically accelerate you know, therapies for, for rare diseases. So again, that's an example, I think, of how, how nicely the FDA has evolved. I mean, it's not perfect, but again, I think they're in a little bit of a tough spot. They've got to do this like tightrope between being nimble and agile and, and, and completely, you know, plugged into the uh, patient, patient needs while making sure that the appropriate processes that, you know, there's no shortcuts, there's no cutting corners um, in the research, right? And I mean, the right. other example, of course, you can think with COVID-19 vaccines, like mm-hmm. the, the breakneck speed at which those vaccines were developed and tested. And the FDA, I think, really did an amazing job, um, you know, reviewing all those data and basically making sure that these vaccines were okay, ready, were fine for the patient population. Mm-hmm. And so I think in, you know, these are a couple of examples, I think, where I see the FDA is evolving, but as I said, they've got a tightrope act to do, which is not not an easy place to be. (laughs) And no one ever accused a government agency of being nimble and agile and fast. Right, exactly. (laughs) So they, 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 you know, they, they kind of have, it's a tough position. It is. It's very, yeah. Going back into what we were talking about before, about the three R's, how does in vitro technology affect the three R's? I mean, if you look at the three R's, right? Replacement, reduction, refinement, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about the first two, right? Replacement and reduction. And that's where I think these in vitro models have such an absolutely huge impact because as in vitro model, relevant, keep in mind, I'm always going to go back to the word relevant. As long as these models are relevant and there's increased adoption of these relevant models in the drug development community, that has a huge impact on, on you know, the replacement and reduction of the mm-hmm. use of animal models, right? So there is a fascinating new paper that I came across that came out of a company called Emulate Bio. I believe it's a relatively recent paper. It was published in Nature Communications Medicine. Um, so if people want to look it up, it's, uh, I believe, I want to say December 2022, mm-hmm. Nature Communications Medicine. And the first author is Ewart, E-W-A-R-T. But what this paper showed, which absolutely um, was so you know amazing, is they they had this company has developed a liver chip. Now remember, when a, when you put a drug into a person, right, or when you you swallow, you know, take a pill, the first place that goes is the liver, and so the liver is basically your clearinghouse, your your metabolic engine for these drugs, right? So mm-hmm. if a drug is very toxic and it's administered systemically, uh you have this uh, this um, concept of drug-induced liver injury, D-I-L-I, right? So anyway, so typically these studies were done in in vivo models, but now this paper um, from Emulate shows that the um, chips that were used are 100% specific, and I want to say 87 or something percent, um, you know, sensitive. So the, it can correct these chips could correctly identify which drugs had higher toxicity and which uh, drugs, you know, had lower toxicity. And also what's even more interesting is that they didn't have any false positives where, you know, a drug that's not toxic was identified as toxic. Hmm. So that's for me, that kind of, those kind of studies are really those game changers, right? Right. For three R's, because 
if you have a legitimate alternative, an alternative that uh, still gives you that high quality of data, so you're not co- you're not compromising on data quality, you're not compromising on data accuracy or sensitivity, because that's you know that's unacceptable. Right. But if these models don't let you compromise, but they reduce the need for animal models, wow, that's such a huge win. Yeah. Right. Well, and- you even mentioned the the third refinement. Um, back to your earlier point of. The more you know from the in vitro data, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the more refined your animal studies, if you still need them, will be. Because it won't just be give the rat the drug, does the rat die, yes, no. It'll be you already have all this data. You know what it should do. You can be more specific with your observations of the animal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that, as I said, you know, previously, that's such a personal important point for me because, again, you know, thoughtful use of these animals is 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 critical, right? And I think this these kind of um, you know initiatives really support the uh, the responsible the responsibility rather that we all have in you know managing uh, in the to the three R's because you know that should not be just a uh, it it should not be a theoretical concept. It should, can be applied in every single drug development program, and it should be. Yep. Yeah. Well, wrapping up, what do you think is going to be the tipping point for making in vitro truly mainstream and able to replace animal models for some requirements with the FDA? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as we, we've got, we've had a lot of discussion, right? There's so many positive mm-hmm. developments in the space, you know, between the investors, the regulatory, the adva- the you know, the fast moving uh, technology advancements. I think these are all the some of the uh, critical parameters for increasing adoption of these in vitro models, right? And I'd like to draw, you know, and a parallel analogy to iPSCs. So iPSCs, you know, induced pluripotent stem cells. I re- they were originally reported, I believe, back in 2006. So about, gosh, about 15, 16 years ago by a absolutely brilliant scientist named Shinya Yamanaka, who won the Nobel Prize and rightfully so for, for, the, for the discovery. But the first few years, they were brutally hard to develop, you know, and, and because they require a very complex cocktail of transcription factors. And yeah, Yamanaka's papers had, you know, a lot of the protocols, but it was very tricky. It was not like an easy, oh, I'll just copy what, um, you know, I'll just lift the protocol, I'll use the protocol that was published. There was a lot of tweaks and nuances and things like that. As, you know, the the IPSCs became easier to culture, that kind of ran in parallel with the adoption curve. And just to put it really very simply, in other words, if you make a technology more accessible, more reproducible and easier to use, people would try it. But if, if you have such a high barrier to entry where it's, you know, there's only a handful of people who know how to do this well, then it naturally would, you know, inhibit adoption. So I think... Um, you know, looking at things like IPSCs is a great path, right, on how we expect additional in vitro models to grow. So it's on it's on these early innovators, it's on these companies, and it's on these academic labs who are driving these platform technologies to really build the body of work and develop, you know, proof of concept data and move it forward to really show that a given in vitro model is really going to be a game changer. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing your, your vast knowledge of this topic. I'm, I'm really pleased we could, we could get a chance to talk about it. It's so interesting and cool. 
No, Mary, it was a pleasure, Mary. I'm, I'm really glad we had this um, chance to talk. As you can tell, this is near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Absolutely. So I shall be watching, I, I will be observing and watching and hopefully supporting, you know, the advancement of in vitro models in the, in the future. Yeah, well, you're in a good position to do that here. So I'm yes, glad indeed. for that. <laughs> All right, Thanks, thank you Mary. so much.